Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And now that our recent foray into Tinto Brass's controversial, nihilistic epic Caligula is safely in our rearview mirror, we're feeling good and ready for a change of scenery, a palate cleanser, something totally different. And I don't know why, but whenever there's a change in the season and the weather starts shifting and doing confusing things, I always kind of find myself returning to one of my favorite types of genre film, suspense thrillers. I I do it in the fall and I do it in the spring, and maybe it's because the weather is so untrustworthy, you know, it's like a warm day is a red herring to distract you from the fact that winter this year may never fucking end and... I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a huge nerd who can't stop watching Murder, She Wrote reruns. (laughs) I definitely feel the same way, and I think that John probably does too. Mysteries, detective stories, and suspense thrillers are some of my, like, all-time favorite comfort food, which is why this week we will be discussing Henri-Georges Clouseau's groundbreaking suspense film, uh, Les Diaboliques, or just Diabolique, as it's often known from 1955, which was a total game changer. Qu'est-ce que vous fichez là toutes les deux? Rien. Okay, so I don't usually do this, and I kind of think it's in bad taste for a little acorn of a podcast to be, like, so presumptuous of its tens of listeners. But, (laughs) (laughs) like, in our Great Silence episode, I want to say this again. I want to implore anyone listening who has not seen Diabolique to please, please watch it before listening to this episode. I mean, the film just, it contains... Uh, multitudes like, yeah well it, it's it's one of cinema's greatest treasures you know and i don't mean like the, the twist endings or like a rug pulling gotcha but it's a perfectly executed buildup of suspense and like a horrifying reveal and it's just like it's so well earned so please if if you are one of the lucky people out there who has never seen this film this dinky podcast it ain't going anywhere you know check it out at your leisure. Don't even read the back of the box. Just watch it. Yeah, it's it's so fucking good. It's so, so, so good. I remember the first time I saw this, I, I got the criterion of it. And I was just like, oh, well, I'm excited to watch this. I know this was like a big influence on things. But like, I felt like I was going to appreciate it more than actually like be affected by it. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to see like where some people got some stuff. But like I'm guessing like the thrills and whatnot are gonna be old hat. Halfway through the movie, I'm at the edge of my fucking seat. I'm just like, holy yeah. shit, this movie is suspenseful. It's fucking scary at parts. And I had no idea what was coming next. It's funny that you started the episode off with that little spoiler warning, which I think is something that, you know, Clouseau would appreciate because he was one of the first people to put an anti-spoiler warning in a movie. So once you watch the whole film, when you make it to the end credits, there's this thing that says, don't be a Diabolique. So Diabolique loosely translates to like, like Le Diabolique is like the devils or the diabolical ones, basically. 
And there's this little message that comes up at the very end of the movie that says, don't be diabolical. Don't ruin the movie for your friends. Don't tell anyone what you have seen. And yeah. it's it's almost like kind of a William Castley type gimmick. Totally. But oh, Hitchcock would steal it. For Psycho. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> like that's the one thing that I knew growing up because I like Psycho was something that was like just burned into my head before I had ever seen it. Like I didn't know the twist ending was coming, but my mom like fucking hyped me up about it. You know, she was like, ooh, don't you're gonna like you know she she did all all the like William Castley tricks to get me all fucking hyped up and that's what that's what Hitchcock did with Psycho he he like you know came out and says like in the trailer for the movie something about like see the version of Psycho TV did not dare show no one will be admitted to see it except from the very beginning Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho rated M suggested for mature audiences parental discretion advised no late admittances. Yeah, if you're here 15 minutes, you will not be admitted to the theater. You know, don't tell well, anyone what happens. You know. Why are you making Hitchcock sound like a carnival barker? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That was more William Castle than Hitchcock. Yeah, that, well, I, that was. I, I can do William Castle. I can't fucking do Hitchcock. But wait a minute. Hang on. So speaking of twists, and I feel like maybe this is where Hitchcock really took the influence to Psycho, which, by the way, Robert Block the writer of Psycho also said he was really influenced by Diabolique and by the writers who we'll talk about later. But the thing that enraged me as a kid, so Psycho was the first Hitchcock movie I saw thanks to some like this wonderful television retrospective, probably sometime before Halloween that showed a whole bunch of his movies, which is my introduction to him. But I distinctly remember being like, 11 or 12 years old watching psycho so excited and then halfway through the fucking protagonist dies like i'm still mad about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean okay so before we get into diabolique and get too down the memory hole i i got a really broad question i i kind of want to throw at you guys and uh, Obviously, this is, you know, um, metaphysical. There's no right or wrong answer here. But I'm, I'm curious. In your opinion, what is it that makes for great suspense? Like, in the classical sense, like, what is it that makes suspense, like, thrilling and, and, and get under your skin and do all the weird things it does to your brain? Ooh, that's a loaded <laughs> question. Sorry. I think a lot of it comes from brilliant setups where you kind of have, you set something up, but you don't make it obvious that you're setting it up. And then you wait long enough where you almost, the audience has completely forgotten about it. And then you bring it up at the worst possible time for the characters. Yeah. And it always gets that like, oh shit, like it just hit the fan. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's it's almost like a bait and switch. It's or, or not. a. I mean, yeah, these are like gimmicks. These are tricks. But when they're done by absolute masters like Clouseau and Hitchcock, of course, it's it doesn't feel like a fucking parlor trick. It doesn't feel like M. Night Shyamalan fucking, you know, Bruce Willis is dead. It's not some fucking dumb bullshit. It's it's something else is happening there that. Uh, it's, it's all about, I think, anticipation. Yes. I feel like 
the waters get really muddied between this idea of a mystery plot and suspense and those sorts of surprise endings or twists that that you're just talking about and I feel like in reality they're three separate things like you can have these mystery stories even murder mysteries that feel like you know murder she wrote for example that feel really comforting even though they're about this kind of grotesque sometimes gruesome subject matter but being able to actually pull off suspense, which Clouseau was an absolute master of and Hitchcock as well. It's, it's showing you, like John was saying, showing you that something is about to happen. And it's the anticipation of that thing happening that is just so it's like your palms start to sweat. Like, I mean, it's not a mystery. I feel like my favorite example of a successful suspense film is Wages of Fear, which Clouseau made right before Diabolique. And it's like the most stressed out I've ever been watching a movie. And it's not a mystery plot at all. It's the jack in the box that, and you never grow out of it. You know, yeah. a little kid plays with a jack in the box. They know the fucking clown's going to jump out, but it's but still, still makes that you jump and you still love it and you're waiting for it. Do you know uh, Hitchcock's bomb theory? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like that classic bit where, the essential fact is to get real suspense, you must let the audience have information. Now, let's take the old-fashioned bomb theory. You and I are sitting talking, we'll say, about baseball. We're talking for five minutes. Suddenly, a bomb goes off, and the audience have a ten-second terrible shock. Now, let's take the same situation. Tell the audience at the beginning that under the table, and show it to them, there's a bomb, and it's going to go off in five minutes. Now, we talk baseball. What are the audience doing? They're saying, don't talk about baseball. There's a bomb under there. Get rid of it. You're, you're freaking out. You're, you're like fucking... You guys, get the fuck out of there. Stop talking about dumb shit. There's a fucking bomb under the table. And I think that that whole, like, that idea of suspense is is really spot on and is something that a lot of, you know, mystery writers in, in like, you know, pulp novels and even, like, tons of other films that have come out that, like, it almost doesn't, you don't even want to call them mysteries. Like, mysteries is, like... It's so hard to, you don't want to, I can't put them in a box. Like, it's so hard to say what these kinds of movies are. And, like, I also, I want to call them whodunits all the time. But, like, I feel like that's, like, not appropriate. Because in a film like Diabolique, it's it's not a whodunit. You know who fucking did it. You know? It's, it's something totally different. Which I think is why it's so important and so influential and was such a landmark film but to me not to sort of jump over Clouseau for a minute but to me this is something that goes back to this kind of Hitchcock versus Fritz Lang debate and you know a couple of years ago I wrote a book on Fritz Lang's M and one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because I find this sort of divergence in crime cinema so interesting so and what I mean is 
the difference between the who done it and the why done it. And I feel like Diabolique really keys into that and sort of plays against both sides. And so what I mean by that, the who done it is set up in something like Hitchcock's The Lodger, where he shows you that this crime is happening, this series of murders. And the whole movie is sort of about who is the killer? Yeah, it's Scream. Who, who done it? Scream. It's, you know, the standard plot for so many murder mysteries. Yeah. I can't believe you just brought that into it. Scream 2. I'm going to try three. to carry on here. You're the one that's in the same room with him. You can hit him. I can't. <laughs> He'll get his. Don't worry. Never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Uh, but the why done it is something that I think was really kind of first introduced in crime cinema with Fritz Long's M, where he shows you the same scenario. It's a killer committing all these horrible crimes, but instead of following a protagonist who's a witness and a potential victim, he just follows the killer and is still able to build these scenes of suspense. Like, even though you know that Peter Lorre's character is a fucking child murderer, you still feel so much suspense when he's being stalked on the street by the people of Berlin who are desperate to figure out who he is and identify him. And it's like if a director can make you feel that level of dread for someone who deserves to be punished, it like that is great filmmaking. And I think those are my favorite kind of movies because I... I expect when I'm watching some like crime movie that like people say like, oh, there's a fucking twist. It's cheap. It it is cheap when that is the only rug you have to pull out when it's just like, oh, the answer is this. We did the red herrings. We did all the tricks that you've that, you know. So when these. You said why done it. I love that. That's awesome. The who done it versus the why done it. (laughs) Why done it is great. I feel like, yeah, these why done it's are so interesting because the, the same level of suspense is there, but it's just for a totally different reason. And, 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 and it, it's crazy. Like Diabolique, the feelings that I go through, like I, I've seen it before and absolutely loved it in my first viewing. And when I was watching it the second time, I like low key secretly thought that. I mean, I knew it was going to be a good fucking movie, but I low-key thought that it was just going to kind of be like, okay, I know what's going to happen, so... Sort of like what John was saying earlier, like, you... I think there are certain movies, especially older movies, that we go into this with this expectation, like, okay, I know this is influential, I know it's important, I know that this is, you know, quote-unquote, good cinema, but you don't expect to feel invested but Clouseau... It's mm. a different fucking story. Oh, yeah. This is like one of 10 movies that I was actually like scared. Like the last 10 minutes, the, the whole typewriter thing, I was fucking it's terrified. so good. Well, and that is what's so great about Clouseau as a filmmaker is I think that sense of like dread and suspense and kind of pessimism shows up in pretty much all of his movies and this we'll we'll talk more about his career in a little bit but this definitely wasn't his first 
murder mystery or crime thriller or his first suspense movie, but I think it's just the marriage of a great story with one of cinema's greatest directors. And I, I really, part of why I wanted to do this episode, and I, I know you guys agree, is I think he's such an underrated director who oh yeah should be considered one of cinema's greatest. For sure. I, I mean, when we were kids, John, I remember you were fucking all about the wages of fear. Yeah. You, you told yeah. me about it all the time. I remember there was like a little while where we were like working on a Wages of Fear knockoff movie script about like space miners or something. I don't know. We were we were kids and it was a, <laughs> a cute no, idea. No, I, I still think that's a cool concept. Like no, Forbidden I, it Planet is. It is. meets well, Wages well, of Fear. Yeah. Fuck yeah. But I mean, even though like you, you told me about it for like years before I finally watched it because it's like a two and a half hour long black and white French fucking uh you know uh, 50s movie and i was a kid who like i mean i'm watching fucking street trash and chud and body melt and that's it you know there's there's no other movies that fucking matter to my dumb brain but eventually i'm like okay you know what i'll watch this movie i'm feeling you know like i should watch i should eat some vegetables tonight and holy fucking shit it took about 35, 40 minutes before it really, you know, got me. And then for the next two hours, I was just stuck. I was glued. Muscles clenched, Muscles sweating. Clenched I had a headache by the time it was over. Oh, my. The first yeah. time I watched it. Uh, <laughs> it, it it's, I've only seen it once, and I'm, I can't wait to watch it again, but I'm, I'm like, saving. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. I would love to see it in a theater. So oh, my, so cool. my first time watching it, as I'm sure was most people's, was watching it at home, renting it, because I heard how important it was. And it just, the dread. The concept alone of just these, like, French dudes who are stuck in some, like, South American country, and the fucking town hates them. They hate the town. They want to get out. They're fucking nasty. Everybody hates each other in pretty yeah. much every Clouseau it, it, movie, There's a lot the of, like, human desperation going on, and they're, they're destitute, and they want to get out of this fucking town and get back home and eat some fucking baguettes or whatever. And they accept this job transporting three trucks filled with nitroglycerin across the most hellish landscape just filled with like potholes and mines and these bridges made out of fucking like toothpicks toothpicks these like rickety ass like indiana jones temple of doom bridges and the fucking movie just it fucks with you and it does the same thing that you were saying earlier john about how you forget because like like the, yeah. it's really really tense and then they f they force you to forget about the danger by doing some kind of trick for like five minutes you f you suddenly are safe for five minutes and that's when they fuck oh it's it's incredible wages of fear is so good and that just carries perfectly over into diabolique it's the hitchcock bomb theory stretched out into a, a long movie and with obstacles thrown in. Like, yeah. it's perfect. It's wild. And part of what makes truly great suspense thrillers and crime thrillers is that they're always about so much more than that gimmick you were talking about. Like, it's about more than the twist, which yeah. 
is why I think this period of cinema and literature and this whole subgenre is so fascinating because especially in the 30s and 40s, you see this really fascinating development of the subgenre where there's this interplay between crime fiction and even media representations of true crime and filmmakers in Europe and film noir in the United States and sort of people coming back and forth because of the advent of World War II. And yeah, my my introduction to the whole thing was, uh, well, when I was a kid, I loved Tales from the Crypt and I had a bunch of Tales from the Crypt comics. And then I realized that there were like a bunch of comics that were like that. Like there was, you know, obviously Vault of Horror. But also there was shock suspense stories. Oh, yeah. That were these like really fucking cool comics that had that like kind of Tales from the Crypt vibe, you know? That like moral at the end. Yeah, yeah. But like they fucking, they were about these nasty, despicable people and crime. And they they had twists, but they also had like that feeling like sometimes there were some why done it's in there you know i mean the who done it's okay i don't mean to knock who done it's they're fucking great too yeah they can be great <laughs> love a who done it i mean agatha christie i'm sure there are some die hard agatha christie fans who listen to our show i i know there are i myself am one but she was so influential in some of these later the way that some of these later murder mysteries come to the screen as films because she had these really intricate whodunit plots most of the time that you know I so last year I actually reread probably like 20 Agatha Christie novels because again it's my comfort food when I'm stressed out I want murder mysteries Um, but she also did this thing that I think both Clouseau and Hitchcock and definitely Fritz Lang also do which is to not just have this great mystery story or suspense story, but to also have all of these underlying things going on about how society is horrible and people are fundamentally violent and capable of evil and all these questions about like what does poverty do to society and why are people driven to these crimes and the nature of justice. Like as in Fritz Lang's M, like yes, okay, we can identify that someone is horrible. And I think this is also at the heart of Diabolique. We know the husband is terrible, but can we say that he deserves to die? And when he is punished, what happens to the other characters? Like there's yeah. there's no sense like in a conventional Hollywood movie that like, okay, the bad guy is punished and sent to jail. Now order is restored and everyone can take breath and go back to their happy lives. It's like no one has a happy life yeah. here. I mean, Agatha Christie, like, I mean, like you were saying earlier about how people in this time were playing with a formula and were doing things that were actually pretty radical considering, you know, your standard like, OK, crimes are being committed. These are all the suspects. There's here's a, a red herring or two. Exactly. You know, the things that you expect. And then here's the reveal. I mean, like, sure, that's a great, fun, comforting plot. But even Agatha Christie was like fucking with it like in her 1946 novel the hollow there's like this character it's it's one of those like hercule poirot fucking ones and there's this character who gets shot and hercule poirot sees the whole thing happen and this character like 
is holding the smoking gun. Someone is shot and falls into the pool, and they shout, you know, Henrietta, as they're falling and dying into this pool. And it's like a very obvious case where, like, okay, this person's clearly the killer. Yeah, and, and, and it happens right off the bat. But the fucking book fucks with you, you know? And it does all of this stuff that, like, it's like just when you think you understand a story, there's more going on. And I think, like, that is what's so cool about this. And like, that's what's so alluring about these stories and why I keep coming back is because just when I think I've seen it all, here's something else. And it's, it's, it's so cool and it's so fascinating. I mean, I think my favorite of her stories are all sort of variations on that plot where she shows you why the crime isn't simple and how, crime isn't just carried out by people who are insane or evil or these like bad you know criminals but by regular people and I think that's what Diabolique does so well is it sets up the entire first half showing you how these seemingly normal women have been driven to want to commit a murder because Michelle the one woman's husband and the other woman's boyfriend is just a fucking bastard. Yeah. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. It was a hot afternoon, and I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you would have known, Keys, the minute she mentioned accident insurance. But I didn't. I felt like so a million. Diabolique was based on a novel originally, right? Yes. So it's, I think the novel is called She Who Was No More. That sounds cool. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um, Wikipedia says the woman who was no more. If that, if we can take that with any credence. Well, the thing is with Wikipedia is like fucking anybody can write whatever. Oh, yeah. I do it all the time. There. I just make up shit and put it on there. Yo, there was one time when I was a teenager that I changed this fact on Wikipedia on the Magic the Gathering creator's, like, wiki that he was cousins with Henry Rollins, and it stayed up there for months. That's incredible. Yeah. That's... (laughs) Anyway, so the novel that it's based on is by... I'm going to attempt this. uh, Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narshajak. Yes, who are adorably known as Boileau Narsajak or Boileau and Narsajak. Yeah, they were this like <laughs> so cute. writing duo that worked together for years and wrote some really incredible books. That need to be translated into English, please, someone. <laughs> I I'm, I'm, think I'm looking at that person right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you were telling me earlier that there was like a bidding war or some kind of like controversy over the rights to the novel for Diabolique? Yeah, so She Who Was No More was a property that Clouseau became aware of because his wife Vera, who stars in the film, I guess read it and was like, yo, here's a banger. And so he scooped up the novel and spent, I think, like a year and a half, two years pretty much rewriting the story to allow for a bigger role for her and, you know, change some details, included the whole, like, boarding school plot. But Hitchcock also got wind of it. And so for anybody not familiar, Hitchcock, like, pretty much all of his major films 
are based on novels by key crime writers. Like he always, you know, looked to things like Daphne du Maurier and uh, Patricia Highsmith wrote uh, Strangers on a Train. And so I think he was really keyed into what was like the hot new crime novel. And so he wanted to buy She Who Was No More and I guess was pissed when it got sold, but it went on to influence Psycho and they worked oh, with yeah. him again, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Well, so in doing research for this episode, uh, I had never seen Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh, boy. And And the reason why we sat down to watch it was because... I guess since Hitchcock couldn't make Diabolique like he wanted to, he got another Wallow and Narshashak book or yeah, story. Yeah, it's called The Living and the Dead. And there's this rumor going around that I think was started by Francois Truffaut, who did this amazing, really long interview with Hitchcock that you should check out. He turned it into a book that's also amazing. But... He sort of speculated that Wallow and Narsajak got wind of Hitchcock wanting their first novel or that first novel. So they wrote one for him, which they later said wasn't true. But it definitely has a lot of those sort of double tropes that show up in so many of his movies. Yeah. And I mean, okay, I don't want to fucking sound like, you know, that guy who loves to shit talk the Beatles that that guy is me. Yeah, or 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 like you know, every time a fucking movie comes out, they're like, "Yo, fuck this movie." The contrarian edge lord, dickhead. Yep. Well, I, I hate to be that guy, but like, I think I hated Vertigo, and I don't. I mean, like talking shit on Hitchcock. I mean, like I don't want to fucking do it. I mean, I feel like you know. Uh, People on the internet love to do it. I just thought it was so frustrating. Like I. I didn't feel suspense once. Well, it's not about suspense. So, okay, I I feel like I right now and I'm I'm curious to know what John thinks, but I am an enormous Hitchcock fan and think he is a genius on the same level as Fritz Lang and Clouseau, but I also find Vertigo to be incredibly frustrating. It's it's it, he doesn't care about the murder that's at the heart of the film. He doesn't care about suspense at all. It's just this one really myopic story about one guy's obsession. And it's like there are basically no side characters. There's no typical police procedural stuff that you would see in a normal murder mystery. It almost feels like he took a break from his normal style of filmmaking to write this really vindictive, angry letter to someone who dumped him. Like, it's so nasty and vindictive. So I'm pro-Vertigo. The first half, it's got a great mystery that I remember it watching does. the first time, trying to figure it out. And the second half, I like it because I think it was kind of cool. Like, Hitchcock, so many of his protagonists are likable. And he allows Jimmy Stewart just to play somebody that you almost get queasy watching. That's exactly how watching it makes me feel. It's like vaguely ill. Just like, here's this character who's, it's not even like watching Fritz Lang's M. It's not that you're watching this anti-hero or this like serial killer protagonist. 
you're watching this guy who is just this like incel, unlikable, obsessed with someone else's wife who he only knows a fake fantasy version of. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart's a fucking incel. He, <laughs> Yeah, he's in love with this version of a person that he created in his head. And I mean, like, I like the movie. It looks really pretty. It's well it's shot, gorgeous. but it's not in my favorites. I like it when Hitchcock is like, having fun yeah there's no there's no humor like yeah he has so much great black comedy in so many movies and here it's just and i can think of some of his movies that have no humor like rebecca is utterly humorless but it's a masterpiece this like you were saying though it, it is beautiful and there was one thing that you pointed out when we were watching it sam that has is really true even though I did not like the movie, it okay because recently we watched the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and and there's a thing that that they do in that series where like it's like obviously very special effects heavy and sometimes it's kind of egregious and a little annoying, but then other times when you're watching it, your mind does this like flip where you you don't realize that you're looking at special effects anymore. And Vertigo had so many shots and like compositions within it that my mind started to work and operate on a completely different level. Like I was no longer like questioning, like, is this green screen or is this a fucking painting between these two? Like, how did he do it? How did they do this shit sometimes? It's unfuck with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a way, it does sort of feel like a response to Diabolique, which something I want to talk about more later for sure is the sheer number of movie like suspense thrillers in the 50s that have to do with killing your spouse is wild but you you definitely I think can see a weird progression happening from in plot and in tone from something like Dial M for Murder and then Diabolique comes out and then Hitchcock kind of responds with Vertigo. It's so weird. Yeah, I, I love that interplay between directors. Like, it's it's the same with philosophers over, like, the years where one person writes something and then someone's like, yo, mm, not quite, sort of this, you know, and then someone's like, yeah, no, and that's been, it's more like this. And it's just this, like, interplay that goes on for you know hundreds of years millennia almost and and to see that happen in in movies in this like time period from the 30s up until i mean today i mean it's it's still happening like these movies are still coming out like like with brian de palma films and everyone says like oh it's just like hitchcock worship and shit but i feel like i mean yeah at times it is but also de palma does similar things where he's He's playing with the medium and and he's responding to Hitchcock. I don't see. I don't agree with you because I, I feel like from this period, from the early 30s to the early 60s, like you have all these writers and directors who are innovating and changing the subgenre like Clouseau and Hitchcock for sure. And so while directors in the 70s and 80s and 90s and you know up to today 
are definitely inspired by them. I don't know that I feel like they're doing something new in as radical a way. Well, yeah. I mean, for sure. I I, I don't think Brian De Palma is... I mean, I, I love him. I think his films are really enjoyable to watch and so stylish. I think it's more like the subtext with De Palma, where like the mechanics yeah. of filmmaking and suspense are there with from Hitchcock, but he's definitely like the counterculture crazy. Like you can see like he he was just as influenced by like Godard and stuff. Oh, yeah. But also that makes me think like I wonder if a younger person watching Diabolique today would find it as impactful because it's been like filtered down through so many different decades of suspense thrillers and crime movies like I know John came across some apparently incredible letterboxd reviews yeah some <laughs> bad ones I mean to be fair I was looking for the bad one there's plenty of intelligent people writing great things about Diabolique on letterboxd was there like a general consensus of why Diabolique is bad? <laughs> they said they thought it was boring and lacked style, which is two things I can't wrap my head around at all. But but I never had my finger on the pulse of modern culture. So These kids today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also maybe it's Brian De Palma's fault. Maybe he was too influenced by Jalo movies and put too much color in that watching a black and white movie it's like okay where's the where's the style <laughs> i think that well i think that's the big problem where people think style they only see style when it's like overblown like a giant set yeah. piece that they don't notice that there's like subtle better ways of doing it yeah something that we were talking about was how in certain scenes it seems to really be influenced by something like german expressionism with this just like extreme use of shadow. And I think the thing that I really love about Boileau and Narsajek's plots is they kind of go from this suspense thriller territory into what feels like weirder supernatural kind of horror. I think a lot of the German expressionism part comes because I feel like they're like slightly linked to film noir where it's, you got all the shadows, but you also have desperate people in this weird, like, underbelly of this, like, weird little world of this boarding school. And they're just willing to do anything to get out of it. Yeah, that was the one thing that drew me into Diabolique, like, so quickly and, like, right off the bat. And the reason why I don't think it's fucking boring at all, despite the fact that it was, like, made in the 50s and it's black and white and full screen. And you gotta read it. <laughs> and you gotta fucking read it. But God. the reason why is these people and this school and this whole area where it takes place, I immediately knew who everybody was. Like there wasn't a lick of exposition needed for me to know that this like hot blonde lady with a fucking bad attitude, she's trouble, you know, and this fucking like this poor Brazilian school teacher lady who like is married to the the principal of the school who's like the owner tyrant who runs the whole place and this guy this he's he's one of the most despicable fucking characters in a movie where like y you want him dead so bad and then when you find out that like these two girls are linking up to kill him it's a relief 
it's like, oh, thank God. But I think it also sets up a mystery from the very beginning when you find out, I think within the first five minutes, that Christina is the wife and Nicole is the mistress. And you're like, wait, why are they getting along so well? Why do they seem like they're best friends? Which is one thing that's suspenseful about this movie is that you get a sense of all of these people, but you also never quite trust them. And, well, I mean, you trust... Christina? Christina. Oh, for sure. You trust her, but I don't know it quite in what way because she's presented as this really vulnerable, almost infantilized character who wears these... Like her dresses and the the way the braided like pigtail way she wears her hair, she looks like she could be a sixteen year old and not like a grown woman who runs a school. Oh, for sure. And they they do I think a lot of really cool things with the dialogue where, like you were saying, there's almost no direct exposition, but things are sort of given to you in these like comments that are just sort of off the cuff about how you know she inherited all this money and that's why he married her and she was raised in a convent so she has like no life experience she has a heart condition which uh vera clouseau had in real life so she's just this like thin delicate woman who is really sort of pushed to the brink that's why i don't get it when people say it's boring because all that shit is dished out to you very quickly and economically and then from the murder on, like every five to ten minutes, you have this new weird obstacle or thing pop up that's just like, oh, shit, what's going to happen now? Oh, shit, are they going to get caught? Or like, where is this guy's corpse? And like, I don't under that's why I don't get it when people say it's fucking boring. Like, my mind was racing the whole entire time. Yeah, when the movie turns into a where's the corpse <laughs> Is, is is this guy fucking haunting them? Like, is he a fucking it's ghost so or a good. ghoul? Like, and, that's just the, uh, that I love that. Like, like earlier, John was saying that the first time he saw it, he was genuinely scared by this scene at the end. When the first time you watch it, it really feels like, oh, did this just become a supernatural horror movie about a ghost coming back to haunt yeah. them? I think that's another thing that Psycho takes from this movie oh, where like yeah. the first half is just like a crime thriller yeah. and then the second half you're in fucked up horror movie territory. I even love the opening credits. So there's this really rundown swimming pool on the school grounds that is like covered by this algae and the water's all thick and gross. Yeah, it looks like fucking shit. When that little kid jumps in the fucking Ugh. pool halfway through to get the keys or whatever, Give I'm like- Give him a tetanus shot. Uh, kid, don't fucking go in there. Are you nuts? <laughs> but also the opening credits are like projected over just a shot of the this like scummy pool water- and it's like, it's Chekhov's pool. You know that. <laughs> you know that that chunky water is coming back to yeah, haunt you. Yeah, and you got Pavlov's dog fucking lapping it up, that nasty. <laughs> but also, my favorite, my favorite twist that never gets old for me is so the body goes missing and Christina starts to panic more and more and more, at which obviously is bugging her heart condition and. She sees this newspaper report about a naked male body, the same general description as her husband, found in the Seine. 
And so she panics and goes to Paris to basically identify the corpse at the morgue, which it's not him. Yeah, but the fact that the movie takes its time with all of that, like, because it takes so long for her to talk to this morgue attendant and go through this fucking bureaucratic Kafka rigmarole, you know, that, like, you know this is going to end with some reveal. Like, something is going to come up that's going to slap you in the face. And then in the end, when the guy's like, nope, it's not the right body, it's like cold water being dumped on you. Like, no, you're not getting your answer yet. You know, we still got more fucking time here. You know what my favorite part of that scene is? The coroner or whatever makes her answer these questions to see, like, if she knows that is her husband's corpse. Like, is he wearing a bracelet or does he have, like, a scar on his thigh or anything like that? As if every day there are people coming in lying and saying, like, they know that dead body just so they can get a glimpse of that dead body. (laughs) I've been kind of bored lately, you know? There's, like, no fucking good movies playing in my local theater. Maybe I'll jump at the morgue and be like, hey, uh, did you guys get any brown-haired dudes in here today? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go fucking look at corpses, you guys. I mean, I used to work at the morgue, and that definitely never happened when I worked there. Although I do know that people have a tendency to falsely report that they committed a crime which is that's a whole different thing Mm. but my favorite thing about that scene which to me feels like the real twist is she goes to look at the body there's this hugely suspenseful moment that you know she pretty much faints when she realizes it's not him because it's like relief on one hand but also now it's so much worse because the body's still missing but the real twist is This unassuming looking guy sitting in the hallway, played by the great Charles Vanell, starts following her and you realize she now has a private detective on her trail who Uh. thinks he's going to help her. But it just makes her so much more (laughs) anxious. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's it's dreadful in ways that very few movies are. And, and the fact that a lot of the characters are so despicable, like obviously the title is the di- diabolic, the fucking diabolical ones. The fiends is another alternate title. The devil is another alternate. I mean, it's so apt because the people in this movie that populate this world are so casually despicable. It adds to that ambiance. It adds to that fucking soup that you're eating while watching this movie that's just... That pool water you're drinking. That pool water you're drinking. (laughs) That fucking nasty pool water with no fucking body floating in it, even though there should be a body floating in it. The thing that I still want an answer to is, so Simone Signore, another one of the greatest actors in all of cinema, is cast as Nicole. And I think you come to really like this friendship between Christina and Nicole. And it's like these two women have fucking had enough of this abusive rapist asshole who's just like stealing their money and beating them up. And and then at the end of the movie, when and this is the part where you should, you know, pause if, if you haven't seen it and you don't want to know what the actual twist is. Yeah, c- cover your ears. I'm covering my ears right now. It's that really Nicole and Michelle want 
Christina to die so they can take her money. So Nicole has been pretending to be her friend and plans the murder with her. Really, Nicole is the much more dominant personality and carries out the murder, which allows for this like fake out scene where Christina thinks the murder has happened, but it really hasn't. And it's like, why, Nicole? Why? Why did you betray us? Why would you want to go off with fucking Paul Maurice, who is just, he's so good at being the worst in John, this movie? John, I feel like that's what you've been doing to me for years. What? <laughs> Pretending to be my friend. What the fuck would I get out of that? <laughs> <laughs> but it does also make me think of something that we haven't talked about really yet is so as i've said a couple times so far i've seen all of clouseau's available films and all of the narrative ones like not counting some of his documentaries all the people are fucking terrible and everyone is like out to get each other and which is i think what makes them so distinctive and so great but i we need to at least mention le corbeau which he made in the early 40s and caused such a sensation that he was banned from like banned by France from making movies for five or six years because everyone in it it's so it it takes place during World War II and it's about this small town where people start someone starts a poison letter writing campaign about this local doctor and it just spreads like a virus and everyone in it is terrible. Like the kids, all any character who seems like weak or victimized, like they're just all awful. That's just something that Clouseau does so well. I mean, in, in Diabolique, when they finally fucking give you that surprise, he's not a ghost. The fucking <laughs> showdown, the fucking ending, that... The fact that these people were plotting all along just to fucking get this, give this lady a heart attack. I mean, like like you were saying earlier, I mean, the way that he blends the fantastic with, like, macabre shit. And just social nihilism. It punches you. It it, it fucking hits you. So that way, like, like, that's why this ending, yeah, it's a fucking twist ending, but the fact that it has so much fucking humanity built into it and fucking like the the dregs of humanity built into it when it punches you it fucking leaves a mark you know and so when i going back to it in in a rewatch in this like second time it still fucking hit you know even though i knew it was coming even though like you know that final scene is burned into my brain forever because it's fucking terrifying it's that typewriter that does it for me the typewriter and the scene that i think has such staying power is when paul maurice's character so she runs down the hallway because she hears someone at her husband's typewriter and you're like oh my god it's a ghost or a zombie or what's happening here and Then she goes back to her bedroom and in the bathroom, the tub is filled with water and his corpse is in the bathtub and he stands up with this like bloated face and these white eyes and she falls to the ground, obviously having some kind of heart attack. And then he pops out these really uncomfortable looking 
contact lenses and it's so even though it's revealed like this is a trick it's still so gross yeah. it's perfect oh and i don't think we we said but boileau and narsajak also wrote so they wrote novels and short stories several of which were adapted into films but they also sometimes wrote screenplays and they wrote the screenplay for franju's eyes without a face which we talked about a few episodes ago oh, yeah. in our exhumed uh, marathon. And I do think there are things in common between Diabolique and Eyes Without a Face, that like weird use of science and realism with yeah. fantasy and horror and how... Yeah, like, they vibe. They got a vibe yeah. that's definitely similar. They make the line really murky. They actually wrote a script for another Franju film called Spotlight on a Murderer that I have yet to see about this wealthy old count who dies and he knows he's dying and he fucking hates his family so much that he hides his own body as he dies <laughs> and <laughs> so that nobody can get the inheritance. Yeah. And so they pretty much have to move into his chateau and try to uncover the body while they also have these like money making schemes going on. And I, it just their use of the macabre, I think, is so wonderful. Yeah, that's what I'm going to fucking do. But just <laughs> when I know that I'm about to fucking die, I'm going to hide all my VHS tapes, you know, <laughs> so that way you motherfucker. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You guys going to I'm going to make it look like one of you murdered me. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be that would be very Raymond style in Dial M for Murder. Is like, all right, how can I be as vindictive as possible? <laughs> Where's the nearest police station? Opposite the church, two minutes walk. Suppose I walk there now. What would you tell them? Everything. Everything? All about Mr. Adams and Mr. Wilson. I should simply tell them that you're trying to blackmail me into... Into? Murdering your wife. I almost wish you would. When she heard that, we'd have the biggest laugh of our lives. Aren't you forgetting something? Am I? You've told me quite a lot tonight. What of it? Suppose I tell them how you followed her to that studio in Chelsea and watched them cooking spaghetti and all that rubbish. Wouldn't that ring a bell? Oh, it certainly would. They'd assume you followed her there yourself. Me? Why should I? Why should you steal her handbag? Why should you write her all those blackmail notes? Can you prove you didn't? You certainly can't prove I did. It'll be a straight case of your word against mine. Smart, aren't you? No, not really. I've just had time to think things out, put myself in your position. That's why I know you're going to agree. What makes you think I'll agree? For the same reason that a donkey with a stick behind him and a carrot in front always goes forwards and not backwards. Yo, John, forgive me for this little walk down memory lane here do you yeah. remember like fucking years and years ago when i was living in ocean city uh you came over like my house i was i had this like really weird fucking house where i was living with a bunch of fucking cops but they yeah. didn't actually yeah. live there <laughs> that sucked they, they like they just had like they were living there on paper so they can be fucking like local ocean city pigs in this like nice beach town and we couldn't smoke weed inside. That was yeah, that was the biggest crime. <laughs> but I mean, they were like never fucking there. It was like a fake flop house for pigs. Whatever. Moral of the story. You came over one time with a movie marathon for us. And we watched a bunch of crazy fucking flicks. 
And then I think three or four movies in, uh, you put on Hex, the Shaw Brothers yes. film. I remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I and, was going to bring up Hex. Uh, and about seven or eight minutes into it, you looked at you looked at me and you and you like looked at the screen and you were like, "Hey, I think I know what this movie is." And then you like looked at your phone and like uh, you know a great taboo when we're watching films, but you pulled yeah. your phone out and you were like, "Oh shit!" And you asked me, "Have you ever seen Diabolique?" And I was like, "No, dude, I can't even fucking say Diabolic. <laughs> you know, I, 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 what the fuck? What are you talking about?" And. <laughs> And we turned the movie off. We literally stopped watching it because... I couldn't let Diabolique be spoiled for you. Which yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I love this. that you did that. That That is a true friend. For sure. I actually had to do that again. Um, I can't remember the title, but it was a Sergio Martino Jello with Edwige Fennec. I can't remember the title right now, but I was watching it with my friend Andrew. Oh. And it takes a bit longer to get to it, but I was like, Andrew, Your have you ever is seen... a locked room. Yes. And I was like, have you ever seen Diabolique? And he's like, no. And I had to turn it off. I was just like, you, I you guess have to see oh, that first. Shit. That movie's a fucking remake of Diabolique too? No, no. It, so it's it has much more of an Edgar Allan Poe vibe, so I never would have put together the Diabolique connection Whoa. unless you brought that up, but... It does have a similar and Jalo films, which our Jalo episode is coming at some point. But I think Jalo films also have a debt to pay to things like Diabolique and the crime movies of the fifties, absolutely, because they're so often about people in families and spouses and people in romantic relationships just trying to secretly murder each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're like these, but like mean in a slightly different way. More lurid. Well, what's really funny, I watched for the first time the other day, Clouseau's last movie, uh, Woman in Chains. Oh, it's so good. It's his only color film, and it looks and feels like a jello, but without the murders. Whoa. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me a little bit of what uh, L.M. Rob Grier was doing, where it has this like strong S&M theme. It's yeah. his later films like uh, The Unfinished, L'Enfer, and La Verité, which is basically this like courtroom drama with Bardot, feel very different. And I think his approach to filmmaking sort of changed after Vera died of a heart attack a couple of years after Diabolique. But that's so sad. Yeah. So at some point we'll have to do a Clouseau part two episode and talk about how different his later films are. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to watch more of them. There's one called Inferno and it's just a documentary because he tried to make this movie that never was made. Oh, yeah. And it made. Yeah. yeah. It's really neat. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Like the documentary incorporates the surviving footage, which it's this like experimental nightmare movie about this husband who becomes obsessed with the idea that his wife is cheating on him it's tight yeah but also that brings me to my earlier point something that i've been thinking about a lot lately is the way that suspense thrillers in the 50s 
were just like obsessed with spouses trying to kill each other. Yeah. And like when you when you think about crime thrillers in the 60s and 70s, they're more often about financially motivated crimes like bank heists and prison breaks and things like like along those more sort of predictable lines. And it's just like there are so many of these great movies that were hugely popular and hugely influential all about killing your spouse. Totally. I, I love those like fucking dirty, nasty, pulpy paperbacks from the 40s and 50s that are always about these fucking like suburban housewives who are, you know, <laughs> they're out, they're out fucking all the dudes on the block and they're fucking taking their husband's money and then they fucking kill them in the end. And it's like, or and like they uh, don't kill them, but they seduce like the young, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the young yeah. old oh, yeah. boy or gross uh, indemnity way of doing it. I, oh, yeah. I had this phase where I was reading those books like I, I couldn't get enough of there them. There's some great There's ones. There's so many real and they're fucking dirty, you know? Like like some of them are like poorly written, you know? Like I I feel like they have more in common with like say like a fifty shades of gray or something like that. Oh, yeah. Like like they're fucking dirty, pulpy paperbacks that were just like Lord. It was like pay me by the cent. Yeah. I'm just oh, trying yeah. to make some fucking money. Yeah, 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 but- yeah. Every five words you get a nickel. It's it's crazy to think about. So last month for our book club, we did Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And as a result, I read a whole bunch of extra Shirley Jackson, who was also writing in the late 40s and the 50s. And so many of her stories are about like unhappy domestic arrangements. And so I guess I've been thinking a lot more about what life in the 50s was really like. And like in the 40s, there's this huge upheaval when everyone goes off to war. Like so many men leave home to fight on various fronts in Europe and Asia. And I think it changes things because women are given the freedom to work and manage their households and manage the money. But then when World War II ends, pretty much all of America and definitely parts of Europe are like, okay, now we can just go back to how things were, right? And and there's this, yeah, there's this weird glorification in the 50s and you see it in stuff like Lassie and Leave it to Beaver and, and things like that where there's this glorification of like a family structure that's like a husband and a wife in these very stereotypical gender roles and They bring up their kids a certain way and the wives have like a full face of makeup and high heels on while they spend eight hours cooking and just this wild shit. So I think it's no surprise that you see this like backlash happening subconsciously in crime movies, like not just Diabolique, but like Dial M for Murder and Strangers on a Train has the kill your wife secretly plot honestly it's one of those things that i feel like vertigo for sure you know it it never goes out of style but just the degree to which it's in style in the 50s oh yeah well i mean that was the fucking birth of that fucking like fantasy land thing that like they were selling on but that was over and that they were desperate to cling on to oh for sure well i mean that's what conservatism is you know, it's it's this like fucking clinging thing that you can't shake off. Also, I don't think it, it, it helps. I 
divorce was still super taboo in the 50s. Divorce was also illegal in a lot of places in the 50s. Yeah, I know uh, in Italy it wasn't even legal until like the 60s. I think the like the late 60s. Yeah, there's also crazy shit in Spain where until the 70s you couldn't get divorced. As a woman, you couldn't own your own bank account. In the 50s, like it was frowned upon to be a professional woman and have your own career. Like crazy shit. So really no wonder there are all these movies about people trying to kill their spouses when It's the whole reason I never got married. So <laughs> be in one yeah, of these movies the by now. Cheeto dust. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get secretly murdered by your wife yeah. and your mistress and dumped into a pool so that Charles Vanell can come along and <laughs> haul you to jail just when you think you've gotten away with it. <laughs> I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. All right. Uh, is there anything else uh, you guys wanna wanna hit on? Mostly just I really encourage people to watch as many of Clouseau's films as you can find because they're so like. I know that they're not all very easy to find, and when I went through and watched them all, it was difficult, but he's just such an important director. Yeah. I, I feel bad that I've only seen three of his films. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about, and maybe we could save this for another episode, but he made some great earlier crime movies called The Murderer Lives at Number 21 and Quai des Orfèvres, which The Murderer Lives at Number 21 is a great place to start after you watch Diabolique because it's also concerned with murder in a small community, but it has all this great black comedy. Yeah. It's no, I'm, yeah, his movies definitely are pretty funny at times. Um, To go back to, to Hitchcock real quick, I would like to visit the alternate universe where he did do this movie. I think it would be interesting to see. But I think uh, we're lucky that this is a French movie. I feel like the 50s Hollywood version of this would have been a little too stiff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, this movie is a fucking French film through and through. I think Clouseau gets better performances out of actors than Hitchcock. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, that's because I feel like a lot of the actors that are in his films don't feel like movie stars you know like a lot of people in hitchcock films even though they are well, well hitchcock was notorious for just treating actors like tools yeah oh yeah. i mean clouseau also was manipulative of actors and so something that we were talking about before we started recording that i think is important to keep in mind like yes hitchcock did not have a great track record for how he treated actresses and hopefully we're moving towards a time where people won't be treated like that anymore but acting like Hitchcock is some sort of perverse outlier is crazy because there are like the majority of directors and producers in the golden age of Hollywood treated their actors terribly like we were saying earlier in the golden age of hollywood it was like fucking illegal to get a divorce you know like like fucking but people also suck. you had people come in and tell you who you could and couldn't be in a relationship with and that what what Whenever you I could eat and where oh yeah oh it's nuts it's fucking nuts 
like they were doing that shit to child actors and oh, they were like yeah. pumping yeah. them full of drugs so they could throw well, them in front of a camera. Judy Garland. I mean, the reason that Judy Garland had such a tragic life is because when she started out, they basically for a while pills were the answer to everything. Like you have to be at the studio early. We'll give you some amphetamines. You're gaining too much weight. We'll give you more amphetamines. You need to go to sleep at night. Here's a downer. And so, like, when your entire life in your early teen and teenage years is structured by that kind of, like, substance dependence, how can you ever have a normal life yeah. and a life where you get to make your own decisions? Like, It's like, you know, it's like trafficking almost. It's totally like trafficking, which brings me to something that you brought up earlier, which is, like, how we talk about how much things have changed but with the whole Harvey Weinstein shit, like, have they? Yeah, no, I, like, I know this is, like, a fucking awful thing to think about, but I don't think things have changed at all. I just think they're going to get better at hiding it. They're going to adopt the proper liberal language, you know, and they're going to yeah, have... Yeah, look, we have this intimacy coordinator on set. You know, yeah, they're going to they're gonna ad- adopt all of those things just so that way, like, y- you don't have to look at it anymore. You don't actually have to think about it anymore. And, like, that happens... I mean, like, that sort of bait and switch, I think, happens in politics and happens all the time when there's power involved and, like, and power is being threatened because it never actually goes away it just uh changes focus yes it moves around a little bit so that way it's a new thing to obfuscate like what's actually happening yes look at this shiny new crisis that you should be outraged about over here that's why we just stick to porn and grindhouse movies yeah. you know that's the, the real moral yeah know, well no but Next. but no it but it does seriously make me think about like whenever this subject of actresses in particular being treated badly in the golden age of Hollywood and like, thank God how much things have changed. Like you, you, all you have to do is go to the Rialto report and listen to episodes interviewing adult film actors from the seventies and eighties. And the female actors talk about how they felt comfortable being in porn because there was no casting couch they didn't feel as manipulated. I mean, some of them, I'm sure, certainly did. But there are just so many accounts where people say, I felt comfortable, I felt like I was being yeah. treated well, and I didn't go into mainstream films because anytime I tried to audition, it was just awful and exploitive. Yeah, there was that like anecdote that I, I don't know how true this is. I heard of this when I was like a teenager or something, uh, that... Jamie Lee Curtis was saying that when she like worked in all these fucking like dirty, nasty horror movies like John Carpenter's Halloween, not really a dirty, nasty horror movie, but like she worked in all these like genre films. And then when she like started getting into like real Hollywood fare, you know, like uh, Fish Called Wanda fucking True Lies, True Lies, (laughs) uh, Trading Places, like every single one of those movies, the directors and the producers on these like huge like multi-million dollar definitely not the fucking bare bones budget of halloween movies were like hey would you mind pulling your fucking tits out for us you know we're gonna need you to get your tits out in this and it's just like and that like kind of hurt you know that like it hurts to hear about that like you go through the fucking like genre stuff and then you realize like wow i was like treated so much fucking 
I was just considered more. I, I don't. It's it, it's fucking. It sucks. You know. No, I I remember um, Kelly Nichols, the porn star. She's the girl that gets nail gunned to death in Toolbox Murders. Great film. And she worked in Hollywood as like a hairdresser and did like like was a body double and stuff. And she said that the exploitation and porno world, what she felt a million times more comfortable. Yeah, it's. I don't know how we found our way here from yeah. Diabolique, <laughs> but segue, uh... <laughs> it's, it's also, it's hard for me to imagine. Well, no, I, I mean, first of all, it's hard for me to imagine someone treating Simone Signore that way because she just is such a powerhouse, which you can see in this movie and looks like she takes no shit. I mean, in Melville's Army of Shadows, she's one of the only female actors to have a major role and it's the same thing there but it i think also speaks to why there is this undercurrent of misogyny in 50s movies is those gender roles and gender dynamics were starting to change but people didn't want them to and that's one thing that i feel like the conservative right and the conservative the conservative right in general does is that when they can feel the groundswell shifting to like, you know, a more liberal lefty kind of world that like when they start to see their power move, that's when they hang on fucking tight. And that's when like the real fucking jaws of death, like, you know, well, that's what's happening now. On. It's like, oh, for sure. The, the possibility that Roe versus Wade will be overturned within the next year or two is horrifying, but also just. All the stuff going on with trans rights in Texas. It's like, why are these children so threatening to you? Like, yeah, it's dis- well, let's just drown them all in that yeah. scummy pool. <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be nice? Yes. All right, John, you got any shout outs? <laughs> <laughs> on that cheerful note? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just, uh, just chilling. I'm going to be back in, in the real world soon with Yo, you guys. When- yeah, when? What's yeah. going on? When's your flight back home? Uh, March 24th. Oh, so I think we got one more of these remote recordings. And then... Hell yeah. Yeah, yo, I'm, I'm hyped for our next episode. That shit's going to be tight. We're not going to spoil it, Every episode is, no. Yeah, no, our, our, our next one, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're breaking formula a little bit, I think. I'm, I'm super excited about it. I mean, we just classed the place up with Diabolique. Yeah, you know, we yeah. went from we gotta go back to, to... <laughs> <laughs> our bread and butter. How about you, Sam? Uh, yes. So a couple different things. First of all, book club, which we're doing now for this month, for March, we are reading China Mayville's October Story of the Russian Revolution. And for April, we're doing Cornell Woolrich's Night Has a Thousand Eyes, which has the same sort of grimy vibe as Diabolique. Yeah. Yo, I got to be honest. The last one that we did... I got so much more out of the book because I like I didn't love We've Always Lived in the Castle. Like I, I, I liked it for sure. But meeting with a bunch of people and hearing so many different perspectives on it, it was awesome. It was great. And I, I, I got to shout out our, our homies at Fishtown Films, Emily and Austin. I mean, both of them really like came through. They like hooked us up with the fucking the sweet professional zoom login so we didn't get kicked off after yeah. 40 minutes because <laughs> we're too fucking cheap to pay for it and and their show is is sick 
like it's like a fucking NPR show almost. Like they they have like the best fucking voice. Whenever I'm like making dinner and I got a, like a whole ass onion and a bunch of peppers I gotta chop up, <laughs> you know, that's stumbled upon movies. It's it's great. It's and and they're great. It's just a sick show. That's my shout out. Uh, my two quick other shout outs um if you want to hear me say more things about french cinema i was on a recent episode of projection booth where it was you so usually projection booth is three hosts mike white and two guest hosts but this time it was just mike and i which was really nice and we did a deep dive into bunuel's belle du jour which is one of my favorite films and i was also on this youtube show called robert bellissimo at the movies to talk about the night porter and my world war ii book what you wrote a fucking book allegedly somebody needs to write a book on clouseau no one's written a book on clouseau i don't think so there's so many great directors and producers that don't have books on them that i would devour in a heartbeat john when are you gonna write a fucking book man what's going on over here you just been in austin texas watching jason x and fucking yeah, I'll, I'll come up with a book. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sound so joyful about it. <laughs> I ain't fucking writing nothing. Don't even look at me. No way. I'm not looking at you. I just, you know, I'm hoping to one day be able to quit my day job so all I can do is write books, and then I'll write a Clouseau book. Ugh. I'll write a book about people killing their wives in the 1950s. <laughs> well, if you want to help, our our dear friend Sam Deacon achieve her dreams. Sign up for her Patreon. We can uh, all quit our day jobs. I don't think that's gonna happen. It's nice to dream about, though. Sure is. All right. See you later, everybody. Au revoir. Bye.